This teaching is from City Church Coventry. You can find us online at www.citychurchcoventry.org. I'm going to read from Acts 26, verses 1 to 23. Um, Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I have conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put put to death, I cast my votes against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. But I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it, is it hard for you to kick against the goats? Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and greater life. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. 
Great. Thank you, John. A little bit less reverb than normal. Um, but I'm sure we all enjoyed that. Um, so uh, I want to speak this morning. I'm going to begin a, a new series. I, I feel we're in a kind of a new season in the word of uh, preparing um, to come. The government's given us a roadmap and preparing to come out of lockdown and into a new season in the natural. And I believe a new season that God has us for his people as well. And I want to talk this morning about returning to the heavenly vision. That's what Paul says there. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I wasn't disobedient to um, the heavenly vision. But before that, I just want to say a few things about returning to normal. And the first is that I think it would be a mistake for us to think it's time to return to normal. Um, we're thinking of how we might return to meeting together. And that's great. And I'm, I'm really um, excited for that and looking for what that might mean. But we really mustn't think about it as a going back. God's people never go backwards, but going on into a new season in God. And I'm not just speaking for uh, as a city church uh, this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the church at large. I've, I've had lots of conversations and lots of questions about what is God saying to the church? What do you think the church needs to do? And uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm certain of is that God wants, God wants to take us forward into a new season, not back into the way we used to do things. And, and God has been working with us in this present season, even if you haven't felt it. Um, and, and that's one of the things about the, the work of God. It, actually, it doesn't rely on whether we feel it too much or not. Um, you know, in the Old Testament times, God instituted for the people the, the principle of Sabbath. And it wasn't just a day in a week. It was also that one year in seven, they would leave the ground unworked and they wouldn't sow and they wouldn't reap a harvest from the ground. And the, 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 the earth was given a Sabbath. And the, the purpose of that, there was a purpose in the nothing. There was a purpose in there not being any activity. That was the work. The work was to do nothing. And I know that, that actually, in, naturally speaking, that, that for many people, it's been a different year, but it hasn't been a year of doing nothing. In fact, some people, it's been the hardest the hardest working year of your life. Those involved in, in frontline, in, 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 uh, in healthcare, um, in, in education and all kinds of things we didn't realize were frontline workers until this pandemic came, like those involved in logistics and, and um, uh, supermarket workers and all the things that, that, that you know, we, we've had to readjust our um, understanding of the, of, of the priorities, that, of the roles that different people play in society. And I, I want to honor those that have done that, those that have stepped into new roles this year, um, been responded to the call of what was needed, those who've um, adjusted the, the, you know, maybe gone from, uh, one uh, one area of healthcare into another, much more frontline and much more demanding, and and just to really honour those that have done that, honour those among the church who've done that, those who've stepped into uh, new roles like becoming part of the testing system. I was just hearing in the um, in in the Zoom this morning where someone said that's what they've been doing this week, and it's been a it's been a challenging week. It's, um, I don't want to suggest that it's been a year where we've we've done nothing. But there are some areas we think, well, I don't think I've done very much in that area. That Maybe in the area of church life, the fact that we've been unable to meet as normal, we think, well, it's almost like nothing much has been happening. But God has a purpose and God is working in that. And if we can see that and if we can accept that, say, God, he foresaw this. He knew what was coming. He planned for us. He provided for us. And we trust that he has been at work, whether or not I feel it. 
And I also believe that the experience of the last year has been a work of preparation that God is doing in us. The whole of our life is a work of preparation, a work of sanctification, of transformation. And um, if you feel that you've been under pressure this year, if you feel like the heat's been turned up, well, Proverbs talks about the crucible uh, that is there to purify silver. silver. Um, that there's a purification that comes through the challenge, that comes through the pressure, that comes through the suffering. And I believe that what God wants his church to return to isn't the way things were, but is a return to a purer gospel, to a more undivided um, focus on his purpose and to a more glorious expression of his church. We've discovered some things in the last year, I think, uh, about life in the spirit. Remember, God spoke to us at the beginning of 2020 as a church and said that he was going to teach us new ways in his spirit in the secret place. And uh, I didn't think that meant um, a, a lockdown. I must admit that I thought that meant when I heard that word, I thought it meant the discipline of going and taking time with God. I didn't think it meant that God would turn all of our homes into secret places. It, I didn't think it would mean he would put us all in a cave. Um, but, you know, he prepared us and he said there's something to learn about the ways of the spirit in this in this year. And, and man, have there been some things to learn? Here are some of them. Um, Ben spoke a couple of weeks ago about, you know, learning um, what it is to, to, to know the presence of God, God turning up when we meet in just in twos and threes. And, uh, you know, in our life group meeting after we uh, after Ben shared that, I asked, I didn't really expect there to be a, a massive response to this. But um, I said, you know, can anyone give an example of recently where you've just met with one other person and then suddenly Jesus turned up? And you know what? Everyone could. Uh, because God is true to his word and he's teaching us new ways of walking with his spirit. Uh, what Another thing we've learned is that the power of amen isn't limited by geography. Uh, you can pray remotely. You can pray over a Zoom link. You can say amen. You can say amen right now to what I'm saying. And although I can't hear you, and so it doesn't give me that little preacher's ego boost, it still does what it's meant to do, which is to lay hold of that word by faith and appropriate it into your life. So keep those amens coming. Don't be quiet. Because the power of agreement works over over long distances. I think it's also helped us. This is something we knew, but perhaps something we didn't um, experience as much as we ought to. But it's taught us that worship is about how I personally direct my life Godwards every day, not just something I do with a band and a crowd once a week. That worship is about it's about a God focused and a God uh, um, shaped. <laughs> um, and a God-directed life, of a life laid down. Um, and I think also it's uh, that, that we've learned that the Holy Spirit is inventive in uh, creating uh, new ways for us to receive the grace of God. Um, let me read you a, a scripture from, from Malachi. Um, chapter three, uh, verses two to four it says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. 
it's prophesying here, obviously, of the time when, when Christ is to come, uh, which, which, he, which he did. But it's also speaking of how God works. When God comes to visit his people, he comes like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap in order to purify his people that they might be better equipped and prepared to serve him. And when it talks about the former years, it's not talking about going back, but it is about going and rediscovering and laying hold again of what God had purposed from the start. And that's what strikes me about this story of of Paul here. This is the third time, Acts 26 is the third time that the uh, story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is recounted. Uh, We get it in the kind of historical context and then we get Paul retelling it twice. And we're all familiar with that with that story. Um, But um, here Paul is speaking before King Agrippa uh, before he finally is about to be sent off to Rome. And what I want to do in here is I want to look at four phrases that Paul uses um, that that shows us how this experience and this vision of Christ framed his whole life. And also for some lessons that we can take from that and to say to us that this is a time for us to return to the heavenly vision, a time to live with that as our guiding principle and our guiding purpose and direction. So the first phrase I want to draw to your attention is this. He says it was a light brighter than the sun. And uh, John um, has a, an encounter with Jesus, uh, similarly overwhelming, uh, that's recorded for us in Revelation 1, where he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This similar description here of the face of Jesus being like the sun. Paul says it was brighter than the sun. What were they seeing? They were seeing the new sun. Malachi calls Jesus the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. They were seeing a new sun for a new earth, a new sun for a new day, a new kind of light by which to see everything. John, In John 1, you've heard me mention this many times, it says, of Jesus' incarnation, the true light that illuminates everyone was coming into the world. That Jesus in his resurrected, glorified form is like the rising of a new sun. He is the sun of the new creation. Um, that, you know, that, that, that's the, the, the picture we get in Revelation 22, that the city of God is illuminated by the Lamb himself. He is the sun of our new day. Um, N.T. Wright, in his uh, commentary, on um, on acts suggests that paul at the point of this may have been engaging and and other scholars think this as well may have been engaging in in a particular meditative practice that the pharisees of that time had which was a meditation on ezekiel one you know the vision that ezekiel has of the of the throne of god and the wheels within wheels and the ones you know the appearance somewhat as a son of man sitting on the throne the person on the throne is obscure and there was a tradition at that time among uh, uh, the, the religious people of meditating on this scripture. In fact, other scholars think that when Jesus says, if two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst, 
it's also referenced in that practice because it was something that would be done together, that they would meditate together on the scripture and believe that God would manifest his presence as they meditated on the scripture. But N.C. Wright suggests maybe this is what Paul was doing. And it was this meditative practice of trying to see more clearly the God who was obscured. And man, did Paul get a surprise because here he was, the persecutor of the Christians, the one who thought he was zealous for the law, the one who thought he was living. He'd laid his whole life down to serve God. And he suddenly sees with clarity he'd never seen before the face of the one who sits on the throne. And he realized it was the person he was persecuting. It was Jesus of Nazareth. He had this encounter that was life-changing, retina burning, (laughs) clarity that he had never had before, that the God of Israel, the God of the law and the prophets, the God he had striven to serve his whole life, was actually the glorified Jesus of Nazareth, who until that point, Paul thought, stood in opposition to the whole of the purpose of God. But now he saw he is the one who is seated on the throne of heaven. A light brighter than the sun, a light to a sun to replace the natural sun with something that shines a light that can never be, that can't be shone, naturally speaking, can only be shone by revelation. Now, many of us will not have had a similar experience of Paul. We've not had a Damascus Road experience, perhaps, of, of a bright light and a voice from heaven. But we've all experienced, the scripture tells us, if we're believers, we've all experienced the same um, impact of the new sun rising in our hearts. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who says, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, here's a contrast between the natural sun, but now it's the natural sun in creation. Let there be light. Make light shine out of darkness. But now we say, there's a new light. There's a new sun because there's a new day that we live as new creatures in Christ. And a return to the heavenly vision means this. It means seeing everything in the light of the new son of the risen Christ. Everything being seen and judged in the light of the new creation. Not knowing or anyone or any situation naturally, but allowing the light of who Christ is to shine on it. Um, We're conscious, more conscious of what we're becoming than what we have been. We talked about judgment earlier. The past is gone. The new has come. It's the, it's what we're becoming that is, is the focus, not what we've, not what we've been and what we're coming from. That our focus is more on how it is in heaven rather than how it is now on the earth. And, you know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our focus is on heaven and bringing the reality of heaven into the earth, not on what the earth is currently like, because what the earth, how the earth currently is, that is passing away. And we're not unaware of that, but it's not our focus. It's not what drives us because we have had this light, a light brighter than the sun, just as Paul did, rise in our hearts to change the way we see everything. The next uh, verse or or phrase that that Paul um, uses is is that I want to draw our attention to is this one. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Having had this revelation of who God is, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the God of 
creation. He is the God of scripture. He is the God of Israel. And then he says, you know, why are you persecuting me? He says, well, who are you? Who are you? He says, well, I'm the one you thought you were serving, but now I'm showing myself more clearly. But he says this, you are persecuting me. So the newborn church, this community that Paul was persecuting, that was going around trying to put into Jesus, uh, into prison, was Jesus. Trying to put them into Jesus is what he did for the rest of his life. (laughs) Putting them into prison was what he was doing up until then. He says, that's me. He's not just saying, um, well, they're kind of, they belong to me or they're associated with me or even that they are endorsed by me. He says they are me. And this was not just a realization for Paul in that moment, but it becomes a central plank of his gospel, doesn't it? And the message that he brings that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the household or the family of God. The church is the bride where the two are destined to become one. That the church and Jesus, whilst they are not the same thing, they are inseparable. God has united. We have become united with Christ. It's a union <coughs> and a work of the spirit. And there are implications for that of that for us. Not just that we were on, um, not just that we're on the right side, not just that we belong to God, but in the purpose that he has for us in the world. So having become united with Christ, the church is what Jesus looks like in the world. And um, just like Jesus says when, they, when, when the people say to him, show us the Father and we'll believe, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, as the church, you know, people might say, well, um, do, you know, we, we want to, um, see, you know, show us Jesus. And we say, well, here he is. <laughs> Not just in me personally, but here he is in his community. This, the church is here to show the world what Jesus looks like like the church is here is is how Jesus is present in the world he is present in the world by his spirit but not by his spirit just kind of randomly and nebulously out in the world his spirit with us I will not leave you alone I will send you another comforter the spirit with us is the guarantee of Jesus presence in the world and the church is also how Jesus works in the world and I think as Christians, we we prayer is a wonderful thing, but we must never use prayer as um, an excuse to try to get God to do what the Holy Spirit has already equipped us to do. OK, prayer is not an alternative to doing it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus, because he's anointed me too. OK, the church is here to do the works of Jesus in the world. That is how Jesus works in the world. And so a return to the heavenly vision is embracing our Christ likeness. In our inner life, in our conduct, 1 Peter 1.16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I love the way that we've not got time to look there now, but you might want to have a look there yourself. 1 Peter 1.16, particularly in the light of some of the things that God's been impressing on us by his spirit through the morning about judgment and standing righteous before God. But the command, be holy as I am holy, is completely unattainable. It is impossible. Jesus says, you know, unless your unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you have no part in me. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Impossible. And yet Peter makes it a promise. You shall be holy for I am holy. 
And he's putting that in the word, and he's talking specifically about how we conduct our lives as believers. Um, and um, and in, 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 in doing that, he's not kind of setting us up to fail. He's not kind of threatening us with judgment, but he's saying, look, the work that Christ has already done is what is guaranteed to make you holy so that you can live holy lives in this world. We also embraced embrace Christ-likeness in our thinking. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. It's, it's wonderfully liberating to think how Jesus thinks <laughs> uh, and not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, but be renewed by the, uh, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you know how, you, how that happens? Romans 12, the verse before it's offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship. Worshiping Jesus has a transformative effect on our minds and it helps us think his way, think his thoughts. And finally, one for action. 1 John four seventeen says, as he is, so are we in this world. As he is glorified, risen, reigning and ruling from the heavens, as he is, so are we in this world. We are here to be Jesus in this world. Okay. Um, I'm going to need to rattle through the next one really quickly. In fact, no, I'll do this one in, in just kind of a couple of sentences. The third phrase I want to pick up is this. Paul says he's commissioned to open their eyes and turn them from light to darkness. And Paul was being called to do for others in this commission he receives from God exactly what was happening to him in the moment. He was seeing something new of Jesus. He was getting this amazing revelation of Jesus that, that shaped and drove and the whole of the rest of his life affected how he understood everything from that moment on. And he's being told, now this is your commission. Go and do the same for others. Go and bring a revelation of Jesus to others. And, um, and it was not just of what you've seen, but what you will see. There was a promise of this. He was going to see more and more revelation of Jesus. Open your eyes, Paul, and open other people's eyes. And of course, he was physically blinded for three days by this experience. And in the opening of his eyes, there was a commission to open the eyes of others. And you know what? The more we open our eyes, I'm not very good at opening my eyes wide. It's one of the things I'm known for. It frustrates opticians. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but it's this promise, Paul, you're going to see more and more and more. Your eyes are going to be open wider and wider and wider. And as you share what you've seen of Jesus, you'll see more of Jesus and you'll be able to share it more effectively and build a bigger and brighter and more glorious vision of Jesus for all of those who will listen to what you have to say. You know what? You and I have that same call to share with others what we've seen of Jesus, to produce a revelation of Jesus in their lives. Just tell them what you've seen. We can get really hung up with, with sharing our faith. And do I say the right thing? Do I, did I say the wrong thing? Which scripture should I use? Share what you've seen. Let them know this is what is shit. This is what is, this is the vision of Jesus that's been burnt into my retina that I see everything else through. This is what I've seen of him. This is what I know of him. A return to the heavenly vision means showing others what you've seen of Jesus and walking with Jesus in expectation that he will always show you more. That was what Paul was promised. You're going to see more and more. And for us that we have that expectation, I'm going to see something fresh of Jesus today. And the first thing I want to do with it is share it with someone else. OK, the final thing, the final phrase I want to pick up here. Um, Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And um, in um, 
I've, I've been reading recently. But by the way, Paul is speaking here 30 years later. And he's saying, I've lived my whole life in obedience, not just to the words, but to the vision. Not just to the command I re- I've received, but the vision I saw of Jesus in all his glory that was so bright and so glorious, it transformed the way I saw everything. I've lived my whole life in obedience to that vision. Um, I was reading in, in one Chronicles recently, and, and at the end of David's life, David wants to build the temple. And of course, the prophet Nathan, first of all, says yes, and then comes back and says, no, actually, you mustn't because you've been a man of war. But Solomon can build the temple. And David makes preparation. And as I was reading this, I started to be troubled by some of the things I read in the Bible. The Bible can trouble you. That's OK. And um, and 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 I think you also we also need to realize that just because the Bible says it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, um, you know, it, it's exactly what God wanted. It's what God wants the Bible to say, but it's not necessarily conveying the true heart of God. Because one of the things that troubled me is that one of the ways that David prepared for the temple is he effectively, he he enslaved the foreign craftsmen that lived in Israel. And as I read that, I thought, man, that's that sounds to me like Pharaoh in Egypt, not King David in Israel. You take the, the foreigners among you and you enslave them to work. And um, it didn't seem to me as I read through that, that the building of the temple was any great progress in the purpose of God. And I've long felt that, that the form of worship in David's tabernacle really was something that reached into the heavens and expressed something of earth in that one generation that, that really was never seen again until the church came along. And whilst I do believe it was God's intention for the temple to be built, I think we're also being shown something here. And as I read through it, I realized that there was a phrase that kept recurring. And it was this to build a house for the Lord, to build a house for the Lord. And as I saw that phrase, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I haven't called you to build a house for me. I've called you to build my house, to build the house of the Lord. And it seems that David and Solomon and all those that were working were striving to do something for God. And like I said, it's difficult to see how, although this was probably the the most, certainly the most glorious and spectacular building that had ever been built in Israel. And you've probably heard me talk about that before and how that displays the glory of God and the purpose of God. And I I, I still 100 percent believe that. But also it instigated a new era of restriction until that point in the tabernacle of David, all had been able to come. Uh, anyone could come and gather around. There was there was singing day and night, 24-7. The prophets and the priests and the leaders of the army were all intermingling together. And now in the temple, it looks fantastic, but it's restrictive. The ark is placed there and it never moves again until it gets stolen and or however, whatever happens to it, however it, it gets removed. But Walter Brueggemann, who you've heard me talk about, he talks about the time of Solomon being the time when God got domesticated by Israel, where now God could be God on their terms. He could be God in their temple. And if the other nations wanted, well, they can come and look to the temple to pray to God. But it seems like it was a restriction. 
Now, one of the things about reading the Bible is that we can we can catch those different layers and those different levels of things. And we can draw truth from things, but we can also and, and you know, for example, that the glory of God displayed in the temple. But we can also see that in some ways there is something here that perhaps misses the heart of God uh, that was better expressed in that other time. Why, why am I saying that in the context of this? It's, it's for this reason. Paul saw something, he saw the most glorious thing that exists in the universe. He saw, he saw the risen Christ enthroned in the heavens. And you might think that if you were going to build something to represent that, you would want to build something spectacular. You would want to build something that outwardly looked glorious, looked magnificent, looked impressive. Um, but that's not what he did at all. His obedience to the heavenly vision, 30 years on from the Damascus Road um, experience, there was not a single Christian building that had been built. There was no global organization. The financial arrangements of the early church would have given the charity commission a heart attack. You know, Paul says, you know, just put a little bit in the box each week and then we'll find a couple of guys who can, you know, travel on some kind of commercial ship across the Mediterranean and deliver it where it needs to go. Um, you know, the audit trail was a nightmare. There was nothing about how they were doing church and what the church looked like in that time that outwardly looked particularly glorious. No, Paul's legacy being 30 years of faithfulness and obedience to the heavenly vision meant this. It meant people, uh, mostly scruffy, everyday people, small communities, um, often persecuted, often misunderstood, often despised, meeting mostly in homes. But people who had had and received this same life changing vision. That was the great gift that God gave to Paul, the ability to replicate and communicate and impart and reveal a heavenly vision of the glorified, enthroned Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the things I want us to take from this season, one of the things I believe the Church of Jesus Christ needs to take from this season is to just ask ourselves this question. Have we been trying to build a house for God? Or are we giving ourselves to build the house of the Lord? Not a house for the Lord, not our design, not our understanding, not our thought of how will this look most impressive? How can we do something that's going to make an impression on the world? But rather to say, no, we give up any right to make those decisions. We are just here to follow and be faithful to the heavenly vision. And if the legacy we leave is a bunch of odd looking, scruffy, everyday people who who gather in small communities, who feel most at home in homes, um, who are not in any way impressive outwardly, but have been captured and lived their lives with a burning vision of Jesus that means they can live and walk in step with the Holy Spirit and bring his glory into the earth through transformed lives, who can be as he is in the world, who can walk every day expecting to see more of him and to show more of his glory through our lives, not through our achievements, through our lives, then I think we will have achieved Something, a return to the heavenly vision means a return to the priority of communities, of everyday people living by a revelation of Jesus Christ and who are eager to to share what they've seen with anyone they can. I believe that's success. That's being obedient to the heavenly vision. And that's the church that God desires.
Thanks for listening to this teaching from City Church Coventry. You can find more great teaching and other resources on our website at www.citychurchcoventry.org.